Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Movie Geeks United Anniversary Series. In this episode, we celebrate the 35th anniversary of the cult hit Firestarter, the popular adaptation of Stephen King's best-selling novel starring Drew Barrymore, George C. Scott, David Keith, and Martin Sheen. Our guest in this episode is the film's director, Mark Lester, in a conversation that was conducted by Aaron Diaz and our sibling podcast, Back by Midnight, in 2009. Charlie McGee is a healthy eight-year-old girl, normal in every way. Charlie, now watch what you're doing. But one. Did she do that? What are you going to do with her? I'll bring her here so you can do all your tests and you give her to me. Charlie has the power. Do something bad. Will you still love me? Oh, Charlie. She can set things on fire. Something's happening in there. With just a glance. It is a power she does not want. Stick with him. Daddy, I'm scared. So am I, honey. A power she cannot control. Back up. And each night, she prays to be just like every other child. We haven't got her yet. We will have. But there are those who will do everything in their power to find her. To control her. Charlie! And maybe destroy her. Charlie! Come to me, Charlie. Go! You're gonna have to burn it down. I mean, burn it all down. Charlie McGee is Stephen King's Firestarter. Will she have the power to survive? Our first guest helped kick off the summer with the best of the two Stephen King adaptations from that year. Director Mark Lester's apocalyptic Firestarter predated Backdraft in depicting the beauty and awesome power of fire. Anchored by a moving performance from Drew Barrymore as a girl channeling her adolescent energy into the kinetic ability to start fires, Firestarter owed more to the dead zone than Carrie. It was a startling emotional father-daughter story as a shadow government attempted to harness Barrymore's Charlie's powers. Lester's direction of the material is assured as he allows for tension to build instead of going for shock effects. This makes the film Hell on Earth finale all the more spectacular because Lester has primed us for the ultimate fireworks show. It is my pleasure to welcome filmmaker Mark Lester to Back by Midnight. Mr. Lester? Yes. yes. How you doing, sir? Very well. Thank you. Good to have you on the show, sir. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate your comments on the movie Firestarter. Yes. Uh, and uh, well, let's get into that. You... you uh, had made a film uh, two years earlier, the class of, the class of '84, which came out in '82, and uh, that was that actually turned out to uh, garner uh, some critical buzz, but also garnered a real cult following. Uh, and um, I'm guessing was it from that that you got involved with uh, the Firestarter project? Yes, yes, that picture was very successful at the uh, Cannes Film Festival in 1982, and then. Uh, the producer, uh, Dino De Laurentiis, had seen the movie, and then uh, when the movie came out, uh, he was, uh, you know, called me and wanted to make some pictures. So when, um, you know, I met with him, and originally we were going to do uh, Year of the Dragon, and, oh, wow. I, and I bought the book 
for, and um, I gave him the book to read, and we were going to do Year of the Dragon, and then um, Firestarter came up at the same time when uh, John Carpenter originally was going to make a version of Firestarter, and mm-hmm. and they, they never could agree on a script. And um, and so um, the Carpenter had thrown the, uh, the, the book out and just wrote an original screenplay on the concept, so the studio didn't want to make it, and it was getting too expensive, so... They knew I could do something at a lower budget that would be great, so they, you know, so De Laurentiis called me, and you know, and then he, he said, "Let's just do Firestarter now, not not Year of the Dragon." So that's how that picture happened. Yeah, and um, and this was at a time when you know everyone was optioning, you know, anything Stephen King, any anything Stephen King wrote, you know, uh, Cujo, Children of the Corn, Dead Zone, and and Creepshow, you know, and so. Did you have any trepidation of, you know, being part of, you know, another, you know, quote unquote, another Stephen King movie? And did you, you know, wanted to make sure it was different from some of these other ones that were all piling up? Well, I yes, I, I was uh, nervous about it because, um, you know, Stephen King, all the other pictures that were made, including by Stanley Kubrick, The Shining was before that. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't he didn't like any of those. Uh, was that correct? I think it was before The Shining. Yeah, yeah, Shining was 1980. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. So in uh, every movie, Stephen King blasted. Even Stanley Kubrick to him was a bad director. So, you know, I was kind of nervous about that. So you know, it was because that they said, well, uh, King said, well, no one followed the books that I wrote. So that's why we're very careful here to follow the book. And if you, you know, the movie follows very closely the uh, the book. What has he done to my father? He's resting and he's fine, just like you. And he knows you're all right, and he sends his love, and he wants you to cooperate with us. You're a liar! Now, what kind of talk is that from a nice little girl like you? Go to hell! Oh, a very stubborn, nice little girl. That's all right, I understand. I know you're tired, and you're not quite sure where you are or why you're here, so I just want to ease your mind, Charlie. Do you mind if I call you Charlie? All right, Charlene. You are here because I'm very interested in this ability that you have. Pyrokinesis. Yes. All of us here are interested in that, and uh, we want to see how far you can take it. And I'll tell you this, Charlie. You'd be doing this great country of ours a really big favor if you'd just cooperate with us. I said I would never start another fire in my life. I want to see my father. you drink the cocoa and get some sleep and if uh, there's anything you want just pick up the phone and let us know i know you'll find this hard to believe now charlie but uh you and me are going to be pals never never say never i'll see you charlie hi charlie E.T. was two years earlier, and so was that uh, everyone's first choice to play Charlie with Drew Barrymore? Uh, well, we actually we saw like every every girl that age in Hollywood. I mean, we I sat there for days and days, and we interviewed dozens and dozens of uh, girls, and it came down to Drew Barrymore and the uh, the girl who started in Poltergeist, Heather O'Rourke. Heather kind of. O'Rourke, right? Okay. And um, you know, so then. You know, ultimately, though, we, you know, became Drew Barrymore, and, uh, 
and uh, so she it was just she had won out in the whole casting sessions but you know we always she was always on the top one or three people that we were considering and how big a coup was it to get George C. Scott as the the main villain yeah that was great I mean basically um, that came about just you know we needed a a, um, someone to play that part and you know originally we were looking for an an actual American Indian and we never found the some you know the right person so then um, De Laurentiis actually knew George C. Scott from um, from the Bible was the last time he, he worked with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, he suggested him, and I, I was a huge fan of George C. Scott's. So I couldn't believe it when he accepted he wanted to do it, and uh, he, he did it. He, he worked for three weeks, actually. We actually got to the um, to the set, and um, in the in the script, there was a there were about six killings in the movie, which were all done in the script by different CIA agents. That, mm-hmm. that George C. Scott sent out to do the killings, and during the shooting, I said, um, I realized after the first one, then I said, then I was going to shoot three more of these people being killed by by Rainbird, and then they weren't going to involve George C. Scott. So I went to him. I said, well, Hey, <coughs> we're paying you all this money to be in the film, and you're George C. Scott. Why am I going to shoot a day with an extra, you know, a one day player to shoot these scenes? Why don't you? Have, will have your character kill all the people in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he said, that's a great idea, and that, that's how the picture was shot. Did he like playing, uh, I guess, or kind of a, a truly malevolent character, and actually a little creepy in that there's a a very a whiff of a kind of uh, sexual perversity in his character, and his obsession with, with the little girl. Did, did he kind of relish playing someone as demented as, as Rayburn? Right, yeah, he loved it. Yeah, he was he was happy the whole time. He's very great to work with, and uh, it was a great experience. If, uh, if you just join us, we're talking to filmmaker Mark Lester and, and highlighting the movies of the summer of '84, and we're talking about Firestarter. Well, I guess I guess we got to talk about the fire, which was uh, you know, you know that probably should have gotten the uh, top billing. In the, so, what was that like? In, in um, what, what were the logistics of, of the fire effects in that? And what did you want to do differently that it hadn't been done, you know, be it uh, Towering Inferno or whatnot? Right. Well, I was attempting to do, you know, things that had never been done before with fire. And this is before CGI. So everything in the film was actually done on the set practically. So it's all real fire. There was no no effects done later. Everything in the movie was done at the time. So, you know, I created this idea of these fireballs that, that would shoot out. So these were elaborate, you know, special effects um, uh, a torpedo kind of fireballs that were put on like a wire, mm-hmm. and then they were detonated, and then they'd fly through the air. So it was kind of dangerous because they could fly off of it, and we had to be around. Uh, they had to be around the actors, and stunt people dove out of the way of them. So it was, you know, very spectacular and dangerous. Um, and then we were shooting in the woods, so. I remember one time we, you know, we burned down a whole replica mansion at the end of the film, and uh, and the fire started spreading to the forest, and it was in a little small town in North Carolina, and the uh, the fire. I call. They said, "Well, we better call the fire department," and this little tiny fire truck comes out, and the two guys jump out, and they look at this forest blazing, and they go, "Oh my God!" So fortunately, we were able to to all put it out, but um, it was. Uh, there were effects that weren't done, like people um, on trampolines, on fire, flying through the air, and uh, 
Um, there was a barn on fire where horses had a stampede out of a burning barn, lots of things like that. And uh, what about the uh, one of my favorite effects, and, I, and I, I would assume it's a simple one, but I was always amazed by it. it you know, there's these moments when, um, when uh, you know, little things catch fire, uh, you know, be it Heather Locklear's hands or the uh, the airport security guy, his feet, and they just seem to kind of, you know, burst into flames on camera without without a cut. So I'm kind of, how are those kind of effects done? With well, each each thing was worked out, you know, a long pre-production period. Like, you know, they were shoes that would burst into flame by pressing a, you know, remote control, and then you know we had gel put on hands that would go on fire, and I mean. Each thing was worked out very specifically, but uh, yeah, sometimes the little things were just as good. I thought. And uh, and at what point uh, did uh, you decide to get uh, Tangerine Dream involved to do the score? Uh, that was after the you know after the shooting was done. Mm-hmm. They had done Sorcerer, so you know they were known for this kind of score, and we just um, well, I wanted to come up with something you know unique and different, and they were very hot like for doing movie scores at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they sent the music. It was interesting because they just sent all of the music without any place to put it. And I mm-hmm. said, well, there's no, uh, there's no numbers to the film. You know, I mean, there's usually the movie scores. They're done actually to the film. Right. By, by moments in the movie will match particularly the the sound. You know, but in this case, they just sent all the tapes. And I called. Well, there's, there's nothing matches the movie. They go, no, you just use it wherever you want. <laughs> so that, so I did. I just put it wherever it sounds the best, and it seemed to work out well for some reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what was it like when that movie came out? And it was early May, and you know, you had kind of a, a, a that film came on, and it did, it did all right. But then it it kind of also got this massive cult following as as a as the years went on, I remember I was a kid uh, in the '80s, and you know that was one of those HBO staples. And I remember I, I, you know, I watched countless times. Right. Well, that's great. Yeah, it's exciting that people. That's the same thing happened with Class of 1984. It's, it's become a, you know, a cult movie year after year. I made Commando too. It's been on. Right. TV. Everyone in the world has seen that movie ten times. So now it's in a, now it's on American movie classics. I'm going. Oh my God! Along with the. All these other classic films. It's very nice. Right. And uh, and uh, did you ever get a a, a note or a comment on from Mr. Stephen King on how what he thought of the film? Uh, no, not particularly. He had, you know, no. I don't know what he what he really thought in the end. Mm-hmm. I think he he ended up. I think he changed his lot of thinking on movies when he made his own picture and then with the. Uh, <laughs> Was it right. called over, overdrive or maximum overdrive with right. the, exactly. the killer truck? You realized it wasn't such an easy thing to do, right? And so, and what do you think of the movie? You know, it's 25 years later, uh, you know, from that summer, and you what? what you know, there's actually a made-for-TV sequel and so forth. And I know Drew Barrymore has even spoofed the film, spoofed it on Saturday Night Live. Right, so, I uh, saw that. I love it. So, so what? What do you do? When? What do you think of the film? You know. 25 years on. I haven't seen it in a long time, but you know these these films hold up. I mean, they're uh, it's just we've come a long t- a long ways in movie making with with uh, CGI. You know, so films with practical effects, 
you know, it's, it's, you don't view them in the same way because you would do all that stuff a lot different now. Mm-hmm. But uh, it still has the great charm, and the actors were great in the movie, and Drew was uh, fantastic, and David Keith. It was like it was a good story, and you don't. I don't think people, you know, unless it's a big studio movie, they you couldn't even afford to make a film like that right now. That's it for this episode of the Movie Geeks United Anniversary Series. Keep up to date on additional titles in this series by visiting moviegeeksunited.net. Mm-hmm.